Hey, it's Jay, and I'd like to share with you now my submission for the award for most obvious statement I've ever made on this podcast. Here it is for you now for your consideration. <clears throat> I like stories. I know it's a strong candidate to win the award, right? I feel good about my chances, but I, I like stories. I like telling them. I like hearing them and watching them and reading them. I like stories because they put me in my feels. I like them because they help me think and act differently and better. I like them because they connect me with myself, but also help me connect to you. I like them because, well, I should probably just share for the millionth time my favorite quote summarizing why I like stories. It's from author and Nobel Prize winner Kazuo Ishiguro, who says this, stories are like one person saying to another, this is how it feels to me. Can you understand what I'm saying? Does it also feel this way to you? I like stories. But you know what I dislike? How people teach story. It becomes this abstraction, this thing out there. We get stuck in theory, which is either too esoteric to really change our daily work, or it's too perfectly sculpted and outlined, like this polished system or workflow or structure, which just doesn't match the mess of our realities. The problem, I think, is that we learn how to tell stories, but we never really learn how to become storytellers. In fact, you could actually make the case that we have to remember how to be storytellers because damn, if kids don't naturally launch into telling stories all the time and see the world through story every day. Okay, so maybe they need a little bit more of those perfectly outlined structures, but my point is that we often miss the point of storytelling. It's not enough to know story. You have to become a storyteller. It isn't just a process. Process is not what makes mastery of this craft. There are two other parts to it. There's the practice and there's the posture. And in this era of infinite noise, where AI is making it really easy to be mediocre at scale, where everyone wants to be their own little media operation, shipping tons of content, we know, you and I, that it's not about content. It's about connection. It's not about reach, it's about resonance. And we know it's not about learning story, it's about being storytellers. Today, we're starting an unthinkable mini-series trying to bring us closer to being exactly that. It's fresh, it's addicting, it's obvious. It's unthinkable how creators trust themselves more than conventional thinking. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I want you to make the leap between what best practices say you have to do to what your intuition is urging you to try. So each episode, we explore the unconventional choices made by creative people and the remarkable things they made as a result. They trusted themselves more than the blueprints, and the thing is, that's only unthinkable until you hear their side of the story. And today's story is about a story told by a storyteller. Again, I like stories. In fact, this episode is the first story in a new mini-series that we're calling Signature Stories. Five incredible storytellers, each with a different background and a different focus to their work, each bringing one story, something crucial to their cause, that they're going to share and then take us inside of. In my ranting about the way we typically learn story and the overemphasis we see on process, 
I find myself really wishing we could dig into somebody's actual practice, the making of the stuff, not just the theory, but the way they construct it and rework it and try it on for size and move beyond these pristine lists of steps and structures to actually concoct the story and then use it in several places around their ecosystem, all to build their brand and leave their legacies. I also want to put on display the posture of these storytellers. In other words, the way they see themselves and the world will become abundantly clear and also something we can learn from too. It's the way they bring their own messy bag of humanity to the work. They dip into it, their perspective, their lived experiences, and they use that stuff to create things only they could create. So to do all this, we have to get closer to the actual work. Now, when I'm asked about storytelling, it's pretty removed from the work. A podcaster might say to me as a guest, But what I really want them to ask me about is like a single story I told and how it all came together. I think you learn so much more by zooming into the actual work. The way, you know, Song Exploder talks about one single track from a musician and suddenly not only do you just understand more about the production process of a Billie Eilish or the war on drugs, but you also understand these deeper, more profound things that they say a whole lot better. Enter this miniseries signature stories. We're going inside the hidden practice and unlocking elements of understanding their posture so we can learn to tell better stories. No, wait, let me correct that. So we can be storytellers. And today's storyteller is Melanie Diesel. Mel's name might be familiar to you if you've heard me or seen me anywhere on the internet talking about our mastermind that we're building together called The Creator Kitchen. She's my partner in that venture, and you can learn more at creatorkitchen.com. She's also a keynote speaker, an award-winning branded content creator, and the author of two books, The Content Fuel Framework and Prove It. She was the first ever editor of branded content at the New York Times, which you'll hear about today. She was also a founding member of HuffPost's branded content team and the director of creative strategy for Time Inc.'s 35 US magazines. She's also just an incredible systems thinker who makes me better every damn day we work together, which is every damn day. And her signature story that you'll hear will put on display so much of what it means to move from learning story to being a storyteller. As a kid, were you always creating? Like, do you remember things you made for yourself, for your friends, for your family? Was this an early aged kind of beginning of your creative journey? A hundred percent. So my family would call me uh, the drama of the family, but not because I was creating the drama, because I was recreating the drama. So I would like act out like, you won't believe what happened at dinner. And then I would like, you know, do voices and all these kinds of things. I would like write little, I call them writing my books, which was like folding, you know, computer paper in half at the time and just like using stickers. My mom likes to joke that my debut book, you know, it's not the content field framework. It's actually Kiki the Ballerina, which was like the first book that she remembered me making with like oh, yeah, glitter I, stickers. I had Sammy the Snake, who was like a rubber snake that I'd like stolen from my grandfather's front yard where he used it to scare off birds and it became my toy. And then I wrote like a couple of books about that. Still waiting for my agent to call me back on those. Yeah, I haven't sold the TV rights yet, but I think it's coming soon. Yeah, coming to PBS Kids this fall. <laughs> If I put like an x-ray over your work and I knew everything you know about how you work, what other creators or storytellers or thinkers would be showing up on that x-ray? 
Ooh, so who's like, what are the pieces and parts that make up my work? Yeah, because I don't like people ask, like, who influences you? And then what people say is, well, these are who I like. And of course, that like implicitly will influence your work. I'm curious, like, okay, over here, the way I open pieces sounds like this. Or I like to conclude sometimes with like a few almost flatly delivered, but hopefully powerful lines of voiceover in the show and then let the music linger. That's just purely stolen from Anthony Bourdain, like my favorite episodes of his. So like no one would know that unless they could put this magical x-ray over my work, but that's where I see it showing up. So do you have anything similar? Anne Hanley obviously has been a, a huge influence in the content marketing space. And she was one of the first female speakers that I saw on stage that I thought like, dang, that's goals. Like I want to, I want to feel as comfortable as she appears to feel. I want to have as much fun as she appears to have. So I don't know all of the specific ways that it shows up, but I know that the way that she has so much fun with her writing, with her presence on stage, is definitely something that I have tried to to sort of chase and find ways to embody it. Like, I also am a huge fan of humorous asides, whether that's like parentheticals in writing or I'm more prone to overusing the M-dash. That's my uh, my my go-to, but... Uh, <laughs> just relatable, kinda, relatable content. Yeah, yeah, just finding, finding a way to kind of like bring the fun and the personality into it. Is that something that was already a skill you had mastered or at least you had the confidence to do it, even if it felt a little raw early on? Or did you hold back from doing that initially? So I think two things. When I first started out, I had crippling imposter syndrome. And so I was probably less likely to let that kind of thing show. Um, But as I've gotten more advanced in my career, I have more experience, I feel way more comfortable just like absolutely being myself. But yeah, I think inserting my like sense of humor, which is a weird thing to like say like, oh, my sense of humor, like I'm presuming that everyone agrees that I have one of those. That is always something I've been practicing throughout my life. What's some advice that if given the chance and also the this is an additional like magic fictional thing you can't do, but imagine you could do this, you would you would scribble it in permanent ink on other creative people's desks. So the advice, the platitude, the pithy statement, whatever that's rattling around your brain often and actually shows up in your work and helps you. So I love to say that you are not blocked. You are using the wrong prompt. Because I think so often when people feel like, oh, I'm, I have writer's block, I have whatever's block, it's like you, your brain is a straight line machine. You tell it which way to go and it goes. So you've told yourself that you are blocked and you are now thinking of all the reasons and ways that you are blocked. Like that's the prompt you gave your brain. Tell me all the things and the reason I can't do this right now. It is so susceptible to just telling yourself what is the prompt you actually need to think on, you need to produce on, and you will set your brain off in that different direction. Can you give an example? Yeah. So you're sitting down to write something and you've given yourself, oh, this is going to be the biggest thing of my career. Like, this is huge. I really need to focus. Like, that, you've given those instructions to your brain. Focus on the pressure. Focus on how important this is. Focus on that. And it's no wonder that you're going to feel like incapable of creating because your brain is fully used up thinking about the pressure. So instead, sit down. I like, I'm so grateful for this opportunity and I can't believe I have this chance to share my story, share this information, whatever it is. Now that's the track that your brain is on. It's not always easy to go from one to the other immediately, but as a constant reminder to say like, if I'm feeling blocked, it's because I gave myself the wrong prompt and finding a way to get back on track. I am very scared to ask you this question because as my co 
co-founder. I understand how you think in systems. <laughs> and I said to you the other day, I said, help me Notion 1 Kenobi. You're yeah, my only yeah. hope. Right? Because you're just so good in Notion in a way that I'm not. So here's the question. We're about to talk about a story of yours. The stories that we all tell come from ideas that we have. Do you show up and go, what am I writing today? What am I saying today? What am I producing today? What's on my mind? Knee-jerk reaction to create? Or nervous to ask it do you have a system for cataloging and or organizing your ideas so this is a great question and i think the answer might surprise you which is that i don't i don't have a story system which is legitimately surprised by this not performatively no no legitimately legitimately, yes and you know we talked with ann hanley for creator kitchen and she was sharing her system right how she kind of like journals them and flags pages and all this stuff And my mind exploded because I was like, oh my God, I've got to do that. Like, I need a book. I need a tracker. Honestly, I just rely on memory, which is actually a horrible system. And that's why I use systems in so many other places. But what's the lesson there? There's something in there, right? Like if that's how you write and you write freely, Mm -hmm. as you do, you mentioned you used to have crippling imposter syndrome and that's just how you do it. What's an advantage of doing it that way? I sometimes will stumble upon stories that I wouldn't have thought of because I'm just letting it come to me and it could feel maybe more organic that way. Because yeah. I don't have that system, I'm not sure, but I imagine that if I was doing it in a more systematic way, it's very easy for it to feel forced or rehearsed or sort of like artificially constructed. But very often I write out of order of whatever the thing that I'm writing is. I write as it comes to me. The final step for me is sewing it all together. Like I'm doing patches. It's like a quilt and what comes to me comes. And then I rearrange it and sew it all together. I want to talk about the story that you're here to tell, the story you've brought us. Two really quick questions. What's the subject of the story? What's it about? And also, why did you choose it? Why is it significant to you? So the story is about sort of my relationship with David Carr, who is the media critic at the New York Times, when I worked there and then thereafter. And I share it because I've used it as a case study to show how approachable the work that I do is, because I think... A lot of times if I'm talking about the New York Times and the kind of brands that I worked with, at least in the time period, you know, that this work was done, it's really easy to come at it and say, well, I'm not the New York Times. I don't have Netflix budget. I'm not IBM, you know, and kind of discount your ability to do it. So I feel like telling this more human side of the case study kind of makes it more approachable and feel like, okay, these are just people doing these things and I could do these things too. So whenever you're ready, the story of you and David Carr. So when I first got to the New York Times in 2014, David Carr, the media critic for the Times, had just written a piece called Storytelling Ads May Be Journalism's New Peril. So basically saying that storytelling ads, which is sponsored content or native advertising, was going to be the downfall of journalistic integrity. Now, you know, he may have some valid points there, but at the time, I was the incoming first ever editor of branded content at the New York Times, and so that didn't feel awesome, uh, particularly because I idolized David Carr. I had seen him in the page one documentary about the New York Times newsroom and just absolutely loved his approach, the his unvarnished opinion on things and the way he kind of like, you know, stuck truth to power. Like he was calling out these huge media conglomerates and and making them tell it like it is. So I really respected him. And so having him come out with a piece like that was a bit of a blow to my already shaky confidence, you know, coming into this job with imposter syndrome. So I decided I had to do something about it because it was really bothering me, right? Like I had this, this 
pit in my gut that like, oh, no, I'm going to disappoint David Carr, even though he had no idea who I was, right? So I sent him an email, and I asked him if he would meet me in the cafeteria and talk about what it is that he was concerned about, what he thought the biggest risks were, kind of learning from his concerns, right? And luckily, he was willing to do that. You know, again, he speaks truth to power. He's not afraid to say what he thinks. So we met in the cafeteria at the New York Times. And this was sort of, this was Switzerland, okay? So we had the wall between church and state. It was so high that we literally had separate elevator banks. Reporters and people like David use this set of elevators over here. And people in the business side and advertising like me use a different set of elevators. And the only floor that both elevators went to was the cafeteria. So this was our Switzerland. So we met there and we shared a chocolate chip cookie. The cookies were amazing in the, in the cafeteria there. And David gave me, like over the course of an hour, a lot of really good things that he wanted me to do, bad things that I shouldn't do, things to avoid. Basically coached me through all the ways I could bring 163 years of the New York Times integrity crumbling to the ground. So, you know, I had a very full notebook. I took that back up to my team and I said, these are essentially our bylaws. Like, I want to maintain the same level of journalistic standards that David expects from media companies, from the New York Times itself. I want us to apply these to the sponsored work that we do with brands. So when we're creating branded content, I want us to aim to create brand journalism. That's the standard I want us to try to uphold. So over time, we worked with a number of different brands, and I was kind of fighting the good fight internally to, to keep these standards up top. The time where I really felt like we nailed it was a piece we did with Netflix and Orange is the New Black, a piece about women in, in prisons and the American prison system. Now, I can talk all about these metrics and all the things that you know performed well for the piece. I could tell you that it was in the top 2% of all the New York Times content the year that this Netflix piece came out. I could tell you that we won a Best Branded Video Award and a Best Native Advertising Award. But for me, the best part was David's reaction to the piece. So when the piece came out, I sent him an email like, hello, David, you know, because we're just friends now. Here, I thought you'd like to check out this piece. And I waited for a reply. And I waited. And I waited. And I pretty much thought I was going to have to pack my desk and see myself out of the building for having crossed some, uh, some church-state barrier when my colleague came up to my desk and was like, did you see his tweet? And so he didn't respond to my email, but he did tweet out, all brand journalism does not suck. Check out this piece by M. Diesel and tagged me in the tweet and then linked to our Netflix piece. So personally, that was incredible. Like I said, I idolized him, right? So that was wonderful. But the biggest thing that that did for us was signal to the industry at large that we were a team to be taken seriously and that we created quality work. Again, his opinion carried a lot of weight in the industry. The other thing it did that was so important is it blew open the doors to the editorial resources that we needed to create even better content. If David Carr thought what we were doing was worthy of praise, then other people in the building were willing to open doors to help us do that good work, right? Insofar as it didn't threaten any sort of editorial integrity. And the reason I'm, I'm sharing all of this is because it's really easy to see big polished pieces like the New York Times and Netflix partnering on a massive investigative piece, right? And feel like that's not something my small business or as a solopreneur or a business without Netflix budget can do. 
but we really just follow those principles that I've talked about today, the principles that David shared with me that day in the cafeteria, and the principles that I have talked to you all through today, which is to teach your audience something, to find a way to educate your audience, to use reputable sources outside of yourself to back up the claims that you're making, to find a unique angle so that you're not saying what everyone else is saying, to find the tension Find what the stakes are. What's, what's the conflict? What's, what's the risk? And then to find the human connection. Don't tell the story of numbers. Don't tell the story of data. Don't tell a list of events. Find faces and voices to stand for the stories that you tell. Because when you create stories that follow these principles, you create stories that touch hearts and change minds. And regardless of what your role is, that's what we're all trying to do. Woo! That was awesome. I haven't told that story in a long time, actually. When did you first tell it? How like how long has it been in your repertoire? Uh, so the first time I told it on a stage was probably like 2017. So this was actually one of the stories that I told at Content Marketing World 2018 when I got the rating that earned me the keynote spot. It was this story about David. So just context for the listener here, Content Marketing World, which is the world's biggest event for content marketing professionals, held in Cleveland every year, owned and run by the Content Marketing Institute, founded by Joe Polizzi. They have this nice system where they use audience reviews of speakers to give the speakers progressively larger stages. So like when I started there, I don't know, 2015 maybe was my first talk there. You know, it was the smallest possible breakout room where I was placed based on my reviews. The next year was a larger stage. And then 2016, I spoke on the keynote track, which is not actually to the whole event. It's just like the big idea track. It's still a breakout technically, but it was, you know, Jay Bear was on that stage and Drew Davis and all these people in marketing that, you know, you look at, you're like, oh, wow, you give lots of talks to lots of people professionally. You're a professional grade storyteller and, you know, professional speakers. After that talk, I had the highest rated speech of the whole event, which meant the next year I opened the whole dang thing on the main stage to all 4,000 people. And then the very next year, Mal, you did that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we decided a few years later, let's take those two people and combine our powers and make a membership. Yeah. So anyways, that's the context that people needed to know. And you use that story about David Carr in that main stage keynote for the very first time. That was the first time that you ever crafted it or had you written it or something before? The first time that I remember sharing it was the year that I got the highest rating. So not on the keynote stage, but it was delivering that story of David that earned me that high rating that I then went on for the keynote stage. Had you uttered it to a friend? Had you used it in writing or did it literally appear for the very first time in your talk? So this was something that I had been working on for a while. I wanted to create a talk that was taking the lessons of journalism and sharing them with a marketing audience. And... As I said, you know, when I'm when I'm working through a talk, the stories just come to me. And so that's what happened is I was building this talk. I got the idea to, well, you know, where did I get this list? It was from it was from David. So like I can't really just drop that. I gotta provide some context for where it came from. And I actually worked with a coach. So I was doing some speaker coaching at that point. And, you know, I had the opportunity to kind of work through a story on the stage, you know, on a practice stage with other speakers in the audience and like a coach. And so I had run through it a bunch of times. I had really carefully crafted every word, every like choreographed movement to that story when I told it at that time. It's like I said, it's been a couple years since I told it on a stage, but it's a story that I talk about often sort of in a, in a casual context. So the information is just in there now. Do you remember sitting down to craft this? 
If you do remember the tangible tactical process, I'd love to know that too, which is like, do you write it in a doc and then put it in slides? That's nice to know. I think what's really powerful to know though is when I write a story and I know it's going into a speech, I start to allow the performance of the talk track muddy the waters and make it less clear how I'm just writing the talk track because I go, oh, I reached this second or third paragraph or moment and now I should do it this way. So I rewrite it, try it, and it didn't make sense. Like I'm better off if I just say, imagine I'm writing this to be spoken out loud, like sitting down in front of an audience because I then take away the performative element, write the damn thing, then stand up in my head and figure out how, do, how does my presence on a stage and performance on a stage change the talk track. I don't do that. I should. I'm, I'm wondering if you relate to that. So yeah, 100%. I, I approach writing a talk very much like I approach writing any sort of piece, which is, again, that I do it all out of order in whatever order makes sense to my brain at the time. And then I sew it all together in sometimes various attempts to sew it together to make sense. So in creating the story about David, I actually had, there's a whole bunch of other things about my relationship with David and our friendship and all these other things that didn't make it in because they weren't in service of the greater lesson of that talk. So I'm a visual thinker. I probably use post-its. That's usually where I start my process is like lessons and I have each thing on a post-it and then I'm moving those around to say, okay, this piece should actually be two different pieces. Let me make two pieces. You're post-its just like on your it. desk. You're yep. just like phys- yeah. physically well, moving usually around on the, wall, the pieces. But you know, sure. so I definitely am just moving those pieces around. And then when I feel like it makes sense, I stick the post-its all together in front to back order so that I have this little post-it book that has all my key points, right? That's usually how I approach for a stage story. And then I will sometimes make edits afterward, depending on how it feels when I'm doing a physical rehearsal. For example, I didn't have the point about the 163 years of integrity of the New York Times crumbling to the ground, which I do remember verbatim, because the first time I performed it, I ad-libbed it, and I put my hand up in the air to refer to the 163, and I like dropped my sparkle hand down as I'm talking about it crumbling to the ground. And I liked how it felt. And it felt like it was good for the service of the story. It was good for performance. So I brought that factoid in, whereas it wasn't part of my original first draft. It's kind of a hybrid, right? Like I have my first draft assembled with these little pieces. But then as I'm rehearsing it physically, I feel like your body speaks to you about what feels awkward, what feels great, and like where that story should be happening in your body, if that makes sense. Totally. I imagine, because I know I wouldn't have written that as part of a script, that I was acting it out and I was like, it came naturally as I was performing it. And then I was like, wait a second, like that was a good ad lib. That was my personality just coming out from the instruction of telling this part of the story. I'd contrast that to my style, which is I don't quite have all the beats and the action ironed out ahead of time. I roughly know them either in my head or in like a paragraph where I'm writing it messily. But I do, maybe sometimes to my own detriment, because I fall in love with what I think is my own cleverness, but often is not actually working, because that's why I need to put it on a stage or put it in front of people on online. But I fall in love with like, I'm going to say it this way. So then I mold the action around it. Sometimes that actually works. But I, I have gotten to the point, this might sound weird, especially if people aren't speakers. If they're storytellers, maybe they understand it. I understand that a feature of my story, just like my words, my tone of voice, musicality of what I'm writing, a feature that I can proactively control is me. It starts, yeah, that's exactly how it is for me. It starts with the material, the beats that are key. 
than that first run through. I know that the physicality is kind of what makes it me. It's what makes it human. It's what makes it, you know, feel like I'm an actual person on a stage telling a story and not performing a script like an actor. Those things sometimes change from talk to talk too. It's still my personality, but the exact words in some cases can change because I am a real person on stage performing. What is a moment inside that telling that's almost like a wink and a nod to yourself where you're like, I hope people come away going, that was a great story. They might not pinpoint this moment as contributing to their experience. Yeah. But I know this is a really cool moment or a good moment or a clever one. It's kind of for you that you know it's there. So reading the tweet, I probably could have just said that he tweeted a link to the piece, but this, the specific language of his tweet and the fact that he like tagged me is was like, I was fangirling. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't print it out and hang it at my desk. And like, that was such a joke amongst my colleagues that my coworkers would literally leave fake notes from David on my desk. Like, meet me for a cookie with like a heart. You know, they're like teasing me about my own, you know, fangirl feeling because I hung that tweet up at my desk. So that's that's for me, I think. <laughs> As you were performing, I was writing out like things I noticed. And I, I wrote the moment right before you read the tweet in your performance is you said, I waited. And I waited and I waited. So you're building tension because mm-hmm. you weren't like after a long delay yeah. or I waited once. You, you raised the stakes. We leaned in as a result. I waited and I waited. And then you could have paid it off immediately, but you still didn't. You said, and then my coworker said, did you see his tweet? And I found that moment so friggin delicious. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, like that is how you tell this story. It's to say... Someone rushed in, there's some urgency, and the audience thinks they know what's coming, which is the payoff of the waiting, right? Like, my coworker rushed in and said, David Carr just criticized your work by saying X, or David Carr just praised your work by saying Y. No, another open loop is inserted there. It's a misdirection. Did you see his tweet? And then the thing you just mentioned where you also read it out loud to the audience, to us today. I think I really wanted people to feel what I was feeling in that moment because genuinely I wasn't kidding about that wall between church and state. Like there were people who thought I should not speak to him. There were people who thought sitting in the same table in the cafeteria was a problem, right? So church and state being what? uh, So church and state in journalism is like business versus editorial. So like the reporters versus advertising, for example. And so because it's such a, a respected legacy news organization, like we had two different elevator banks for a reason. Like we were not supposed to fraternize and here I am sharing cookies with the guy in the cafeteria. So it was a risk. I, I genuinely thought in that moment, like maybe I just crossed a line, maybe sending him a piece of sponsored content, like maybe I'm going to get fired. I don't know. It was stressful. <laughs> Has this story made the tour maybe in other formats? Have you told it when interviewed on other podcasts? Have you written about it? Or is it something that is pretty much exclusive to the one project, your keynotes? So it is pretty exclusive to that one keynote. I can't say for sure that I've never shared it on a podcast. If someone were to ask, uh, it would have had to be someone who saw me tell it on stage and then asked to follow up in a podcast. Truthfully, it's it's a pretty vulnerable story, like not just that stress moment, but David Carr has since passed away. So like there's a lot of emotion there for me. And so it's not something that I will usually tell in a bunch of different contexts. I really save it. Like I don't want to feel like I'm exploiting his memory, if that makes sense. So it's something that's really lived for that specific purpose, that that story where he was integral to that case study. 
Can you note any differences between, even though it hasn't made the rounds and crossed to different mediums that you create in, it's certainly persisted over time, both in your mind and out loud. Can you point to any differences between the initial tellings and the latest? Yeah, I think, you know, it's with any speaking material you get, the more comfortable you get, the better it feels. I mean, I remember the first time telling that I I got choked up. Like I said, it was emotional. I struggled to tell that story. I felt guilty. Maybe I shouldn't tell this story. And now I feel confident that it's just as much my story as well. That I'm really telling the story of my experience of that. And I'm not putting words into his mouth that weren't there. You know, it's something that I, I felt very strongly that I wanted to make sure it was accurate, right? Journalism can't help it. So I think now I'm so sure of that, that I feel comfortable sharing it. And there doesn't have to be hesitation, shame, embarrassment, or even like deep sadness. Like that's a beautiful interaction that I have that I can look back on, you know, someone that I respect so deeply, providing such positive feedback and really, I mean, at a time when I needed it, like I I had crippling imposter syndrome. I was 24. I had this massive job. The whole industry was looking at me. And this tiny interaction from him made all the difference in my view of my role at the company and the impact that I could have. So I feel much safer standing in that story and like holding it as part of myself. When you put it in front of an audience and get that tight feedback loop that that speakers so enjoy that other content creators hopefully get a version of, uh, that'll inevitably change the story. Was any feedback surprising, things they were latching onto, things that didn't work, and or how did that change the story? So the first time I told this, which I think definitely also at the time at Content Marketing World, I had a lot more detail in there about the piece itself, right? About the folks that I interviewed for the story, you know, the details of the the people that I was quoting and things like that. Um, and that was helpful. And I think it gave credibility. But what I realized is that was ultimately fluff in some ways, right? Like people didn't, people weren't coming up to me afterward and talking about any of those things. They weren't like, wow, I can't believe you interviewed a real prison reform activist. That's not what was resonating with them, right? It wasn't about how well I did the piece. And so a lot of those extra details, while interesting, were not necessary for the lesson. So I did pretty dramatically after that shrink down the amount of time I spent describing the piece itself. Because again, like that was not really the point of the story. And while it was helpful, it was not the best use of those minutes. So I definitely shortened the description of the piece subsequently and and sometimes don't even really talk about the piece now. Was there any, speaking of the evolution of the story and also how much it matters, how personal it feels to you, was there any friction that you felt trying to develop this and articulate it the right way? Things you kept getting stuck on, things you kept changing, things that felt like, I know it's in me, but it's not coming out. I was very concerned about accuracy. I do remember going back. I mean, I keep, I think like most writers, I have tons of notebooks that are full of everything. So I went back and I found my notes from those days. I found the papers that I'm talking about that had my notes from the meeting. I found journal entries from that same time period where I was recapping my feelings from the day. So in a weird way, I kind of had to report the story for myself for my own level of comfort. And I think the more that I did that and the more evidence that I found, the more comfortable I felt telling it. That was probably the biggest friction for me was just feeling like, I want to be respectful of his memory, and I want to make sure that I'm being as accurate as possible.
when asked, David Sedaris responded to the question of how true his stories are with one of my favorite lines, true enough for you. So we are all in the business of teaching, of inspiring, you know, the meaning conveyed by the story is why it resonates. And you did a great job there of changing the position of the meaning instead of it coming through in bits throughout it. You ended with several insights and extracted it. And it's clear you had a vision for why you're telling the story to an audience. So the meaning does the resonating, which means all the details of the story should be in service of that meaning. Part of that might mean you use those details so that the audience gets to know you. It's not necessarily hinting at the lesson, but it's I now trust Mel and like Mel more. So when she delivers the lesson, I will trust that more and remember that more. And then the rest of the details, of course, are trying to lead you somewhere in the action and the lesson that follows. Given all of that, I think it is well within the right of a storyteller and in fact, very common among professional storytellers to change, massage, isolate, accentuate, remove details. How did you mold this story? It's impossible to tell it on a stage as beat by beat reporting. It's not a documentary. There was not a camera following you around and then you showed us the footage. So what did you do to ensure the story could fit the purpose that it had? So I think for me, it started with the meeting where he gave me the list. Like that was really the reason for pulling the story in, right? I'm teaching these best practices. Where did I first start paying such close attention to this? And it was, well, it came out of that meeting. And then I thought, okay, well, can I share that it came from that meeting? Well, only if only if I give context for who David is and why I was meeting with him. And the meaning of that meeting isn't clear unless it's clear that we were having a secret meeting under the cover of darkness, you know, like <laughs> when we wouldn't, weren't supposed to be. <laughs> I think it kind of like blossomed from what details are necessary. And then to your point earlier about, you know, I waited and waited, what points that were mine, could I dramatize, could I perform more to add to the experience of the story? So like I said, I was very nervous and I did wait and wait and I was distracted and I refreshed my inbox all day, but I didn't have to tell all of those details, right? I could just share that I waited and I was waiting and, and stressed. It started with that meeting and then just trying to see how many layers of the onion do I need to peel back for that center, the meeting in the cafeteria where I got these rules to make sense. Speaking of the meeting, by the way, you did such a good job of describing all the details leading up to it that made it clear in my mind and also tantalizing to know what goes on in the meeting. And when you talked about the cafeteria, you've explained to us the church and state divide and the elevators and all that stuff. My jaw dropped because it's like I've been in media content editorial roles my whole career. So I knew about the divide. I didn't know it extended to quite that degree at a place like the New York Times. So I was gripped by that moment. And when you were talking about in the meeting, we talked about things I could do, things to avoid. He coached me through some things and I went back with a bunch of notes to my team I found myself dying to know, like, what did he tell you? Do you remember? Was that not part of the story? Oh, yeah. That was probably partially me adapting the content to put it all together, right? Because, again, in the context of a, a full keynote, I would have been teaching them the concepts, those, those five that I listed out. I would have been teaching them before I got to that part of the story. So the audience who has seen the whole keynote would have a sense of like, oh, that's probably where these best practices that she's talking about came from. I don't give all of it away there because I think the recap is, at least for me, my main message to the audience was like, again, these are just people doing things. You can take this same sort of playbook uh, and try to aspire to those same levels. I think for me, I wanted to leave that to the end because otherwise it made the meeting the important thing. And I really wanted 
the results that they can achieve to be the important thing. So I used that list not to underscore like, here's why David was so smart and the meeting was so great. Like, that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is that information can be used to achieve these outcomes. And remember, here's what we did. That's interesting. You told us before the story why you chose this one, why it mattered to you. Now that we've heard it and dissected it, why does this story matter to those you're trying to serve? I think it's really a good example of what so many of them are facing, which is feeling like I'm in an environment where I'm not sure if I can deliver on the results that everyone's expecting. It's a high pressure situation. We know most marketers don't have the budget, the team, the resources that they feel like they need. And in the way that David was able to be a guide for me to help me kind of get through that tough time and achieve the goal, I kind of wanted to play that same role for them to say like, I know that you also may not have the resources. You may not have the support of your organization or you may not have access to the same things, but you can control your standards. You can control what you aim to do. And in doing that, you can create better results. So don't worry about how expensive it is to create a three-part mini doc. Don't worry about whether you can afford a designer or you have one on staff to make an infographic. Make sure that you're focused on the story that you're telling is a story worth telling and a story worth reading or watching or listening to. And that's going to be the what makes the difference for you. So I wanted I wanted to share that knowledge, right? Like I was felt really privileged and lucky to have gotten that guidance and I wanted to kind of pay that forward. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from the great Alana Nevins. And special thanks to Melanie Diesel for her creativity and generosity. If you share this episode with a friend, and I really hope you do, please remember to give her a shout out publicly on social media too. If you want to become a more effective storyteller in your work, two things I would suggest right away. So number one, there's my free newsletter, Playing Favorites. Every other Friday, I send one idea or framework to help you resonate deeper and become a stronger storyteller. That's every other Friday in Playing Favorites. There's a link to subscribe in your show notes or visit jaconzo.com. And second of all, there's our mastermind, The Creator Kitchen, which is a community of professional content creators who, like you and I, are really sick of all the sameness, all the hollowness, and we're ready to create more valuable, more original work. We help each other do that together. You get access to the group as a member, plus behind-the-scenes videos of how I create my work, masterclasses from me and Melanie and elite guests from our networks, and both one-on-one and small group support. That's creatorkitchen.com, and you can use the code UNTHINKABLE for a discount. I'm back in two weeks with another episode of the show, but until then, keep making what matters. See ya!